Hannah. Hello, Anna. How, How are you? <laughs> um, I'm good. I just realized September has kicked off. I guess we can count this as fall. I'm saying it's fall. Yeah, I'm ready for my pumpkin beverages and my decorations. I think Starbucks has them. Yeah, they do. My plan for this weekend, my like treat yourself plan was I was going to go to the farmer's market and I was going to go to Starbucks and get a pumpkin spice latte. Oh my gosh, yes. Also, I want to try the pumpkin cream cold brew. I heard that's a huge hit. Okay, I really actually do enjoy that a lot. That's really good. (laughs) It is really good. Uh, And it's not as sweet because you can ask for... Um, I, I don't know. It depends on the mood I'm in. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, bring it on. And other days I don't want all the super sweetness. You can ask for the cold brew without, like, they put sweetener in the cold brewed coffee. You can ask for it without that. And then you just get the cold foam, which is sweet. So it's still sweet, but it's not like as Oh, super sweet. I didn't know you could do that. That's awesome. Yeah. But I don't want to make it sound like I'm like, yeah, I don't like sweet things because I do. Yeah. But, you know, we all have different <laughs> moods. <laughs> I can definitely vouch for Anna. She has a sweet tooth. <laughs> I do. We love eating dessert together. (laughs) On that note, so a friend of ours, we all went over to her place on Monday and we watched The Bachelor in Paradise. And I have never actually seen The Bachelor in Paradise. And maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I think I like it more than the regular Bachelor and Bachelorette. Okay, that's so interesting, Anna, because I feel more stressed watching The Bachelor in Paradise as opposed to The Bachelor and Bachelorette. So for those of you who don't know, The Bachelor in Paradise takes previous contestants from The Bachelor and Bachelorette shows, groups them together, together, throws them on an island or a tropical paradise. So this season, it's in Mexico. They don't have any technology on them, uh, no access to internet, and they're just told to hang out with each other and they're filmed. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like they throw a bunch of contestants into a paradise and it's a free-for-all. Exactly, exactly. And it's so dramatic. What I like about it is, though, is that there's so many different couples. Like, rather than just, uh, like, a bunch of women or a bunch of men fighting for a single person. Yes. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, man. Yes. (laughs) I like that it focuses on so many different people. I think my threshold for handling a lot of, like, dramatic stories is not as high because for The Bachelor and Bachelorette, I love, like, that level of drama. But in The Bachelor of Paradise, there's so many different stories going on. And there's so many actions that these people are twi- people are taking that I'm just like, what are you thinking? Like, don't do that. Like, what's wrong with you? And this is, this is running through my mind literally every other minute of the episode. <laughs> yeah, we went. We all watched it together. And it's, it's just at one point, it's just like, can somebody make a good choice? Like, just <laughs> one person, please. Like, yeah. <laughs> But I'm sure they're all being encouraged by producers to make ridiculous choices. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So should we actually talk about what we came here to talk about? Yes, let's do it. Let's give the people what they tuned in for. (laughs) Not just our opinions on The Bachelor in Paradise. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Anna, do you want to go ahead and introduce the topic since you came up with it? I do. Yes. Okay. So today we're going to do black holes. And I very, I very, you know, intelligently came up with this when I was sitting there one day, completely out of creative juices, and I Googled space topics. And this showed up. And I was like, ah, oh, black holes will be interesting. So <laughs> Our plan is that this episode will focus on the science and the history of black holes. And the next episode will focus on some of the cool engineering 
that is being used to observe black holes. All right. So should we introduce ourselves and then get into it? Yes, let's do it. I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is... But But it it is is Rocket Science. Okay, bring on this technical description. All right. So literally my first note is black holes, where to start? (laughs) I didn't envy you taking this on, but I was impressed. I just like when I started, I was so excited and I played a bunch of random videos and read a bunch of random things. And I was like, wait a second, I should probably start taking notes and figuring out how to present this information. So here we go. Black holes. Like, just think about them. Personally, when I think about them, it just gives me goosebumps. Like my mind thinks about them as these like mystifying, treacherous quicksand of space. And fact. You have to move faster than the speed of light to escape the pull of a black hole, which is not possible, so it's super freaky. But I'll get to more on that later. So to understand black holes, we must first understand stars. Stars consist of an insane amount of hydrogen and helium atoms that generate tremendous amounts of heat from nuclear processes occurring in their cores. Specifically, nuclear fusion of hydrogen atoms occurs to produce helium at the core of these stars. This process releases massive amounts of energy in the form of radiation that counteracts the gravity of the mass of the star, such that it does not collapse under its own weight. So on Earth, we figured out nuclear fission, which a very simple definition for is in which you split a nucleus. However, we haven't figured out how to recreate nuclear fusion, and that's what happens on the sun. And what would be really amazing about that is if we figure it out, it could be an incredible source of energy. Yes, exactly. Going back to stars, heat and pressure at the core can keep fusing heavier elements, so after the hydrogen is depleted in the core, the star can fuse helium to produce progressively heavier elements, including carbon, neon, oxygen, silicon, and eventually iron. When iron starts getting produced in a star, that is when things get pretty ugly. So at this point, the fusion process is no longer exothermic, meaning it just releases energy, but it is endothermic. It requires energy. So to fuse iron into anything heavier would require a tremendous input of energy. Unlike the elements before iron, the fusion process to also just create iron would require an input of energy. So in other words, generating the previous elements of helium, carbon, neon, oxygen, and silicon actually created energy that prevented the star from collapsing on itself from its own weight. Okay, so all of the elements a star produces before iron, it creates energy when it does that. Yes. And because it's creating energy, it doesn't collapse. Exactly. But when you get to iron, in order to create iron, it needs energy. And so because it's not getting that energy fed into it that it needs, it starts to collapse. Exactly, Anna. Perfectly said. Okay, got it. I actually didn't know that. So when I think about a star and I think about the core, I think about arrows pointing out of the core in my mind to think about the energy that's being radiated out. And then when I think about the mass of the star, 
wanting to collapse on itself, I think about arrows going in the opposite direction towards the core. So essentially you have yeah. two fighting arrows, one out of the core and one into the core. From into the core being from gravity, out of the core from radiation from nuclear fusion. Yes. Or like if you blow up a balloon, if you are not, once you stop blowing air into it, it will slowly leak that air out. And if you want to prevent it from slowly leaking that air out, you have to keep blowing air into it. Yes, exactly, Anna. So if you're not blowing that air into that balloon, or in this case, providing energy to that star, it will collapse. Yes. That's a great example. I just made that up and I was pretty proud of myself. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to iron, creating iron does not generate energy. So you keep getting iron collecting up in the core of the star and the mass of the star gets heavier and heavier, and the amount of radiation emitting from the core gets lower and lower, leading to an imbalance. This imbalance will lead to the core collapsing. When the core collapses, it can lead to one of two things. One, a neutron star, or two, a black hole. For those of you wondering what a neutron star is, it's the smallest and densest stellar creation besides a black hole. So going back to black holes, a black hole with 10 times the mass of our sun will only be 60 kilometers across. This is wild to think about. 10 times the mass of our sun. So if you think about it, a trained marathon runner can finish 42 kilometers, which is what the kilometers in a marathon, in about three to four hours. So a marathon runner could run across the entire diameter of a collapsed black hole that is that has the mass that's 10 times our sun whoa yeah so that's 20 it's more a marathon's 26.2 miles or apparently 42 kilometers which i didn't know yes (laughs) so it would be more than that's wow that's it's nuts they're so dense there's just so much gravity in them huge gravitational pull yeah all right so i'm going to go ahead and talk about the key features of a black hole you'll hear if you're writing if you're reading about black holes or looking into them you'll come across these terms so i'm just going to get into them here so one is the singularity we are not oh my god (laughs) i came across this word so many times (laughs) right it's a very popular word for black holes like i got it i got it (laughs) and then you'll also hear it said about like the ai singularity or the tech singularity that is not what we're talking about here we're talking about the black hole singularity which is very different (laughs) what is the ai singularity oh my god i'm gonna butcher this is i think it's it's the idea that when we create ai that has true artificial intelligence and it gets better than us it will be the singularity exactly when we create ai that is more intelligent the point of no return essentially yes yes Yes, but this is a different thing. However, people love this word. And by people, I mean scientists. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So for the black hole singularity, we have, we are not completely sure what this is. It may be infinitely dense. All its mass may be concentrated at one single point in space without any surface or volume. At this point, we have no idea really what it can be, but it is something that we've theorized that like, if you think about uh, like a black hole, you'll think about the, you know, the hole, but it essentially becomes just this tunnel that keeps getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier to this point 
which is what the singularity is theorized to be. Yeah, it confuses me every time because they're like, it's infinitely dense. It also doesn't exist, but it does because it's infinitely dense. So essentially, the density and gravitational field of the black hole is predicted to become infinite uh, based on general relativity. And that's where this hypothesis is coming from. All right, the second term is event horizon. This is the black part of a black hole. It is the region of space around a black hole from which light cannot even escape. It's like the trap door of the black hole. Once you cross it, you cannot escape it. Gravity alters time. The stronger the gravity, the slower that time passes. As you are sucked into the black hole, you will see the rest of the universe speed up because the gravity outside the black hole is relatively slower than inside the black hole. So you're inside the black hole, people and planets are outside the black hole at a lower gravity, they are moving at a faster time. So you will see them just whiz by if you are in the black hole. And for the observer watching you from some other planet, they will see you get sucked into the black hole, but you will be moving very slowly to them. And so just think about this one step further. You're in a black hole's gravitational influence, but if you decide to fly out of the gravitational pull, you might just see that an eternity has passed by for the people you left on your home planet, which is nuts. Okay, Interstellar loves this. Oh, yeah. Like the movie. <laughs> Interstellar is all about time warps. They just love that stuff. Yes. They, every time I, yes, they, they were really into that. If you would like an example, go watch Interstellar. Go watch it. It's a great movie. I actually enjoyed it. It is much. a great movie. I, uh, the end, uh, the end. Yeah, got me. Yeah. But I think the rest is good. Yes. Uh, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Maybe we can do a bonus episode where we just go through Interstellar. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Actually, we should do that. Yeah, that'd be a blast. But back to black holes. Yes. All right. So the next term, I'm, term that I want to talk about is the accretion disk. This is a ring of spinning ionized gas, aka plasma, that circles a black hole. Just like Saturn's rings, Matter is attracted to black holes because of its gravitational pull. This gas is just circling the black hole, waiting to be pulled in by the gravity of the black hole. Depending on how far away the gas is, it can be circling the black hole literally forever. Think about planets circling the sun. The sun has such a huge gravitational pull, but still the planets are circling and circling, and it's going to take a very, very, very long time for us to eventually be sucked in by the sun. Yeah, I mean, it will definitely not be in our lifetimes. So you don't have to worry about that. Very true. Thank you, Anna, for de-stressing those of us who got stressed. <laughs> As somebody with anxiety, I need to preface. <laughs> for others. All right. So when you look at a picture of a black hole, uh, you will see this ring of light surrounding a black hole. So what causes the light? That is the photon ring, also known as the ring of fire. Remember, light is a particle. Visible light and all the forms of electromagnetic radiation are carried by photons. The gravity of a black hole is so strong that even photons are attracted to it. And these photons will circle the black hole. They'll zip around the black hole so fast that if you were at a black hole and looked to your left or your right, right at the right angle, you would see mirrors of yourself because the photons will be bouncing off of you and reflecting you to your own eyes. Oh, that's trippy. It's really freaky. 
All right, so the next thing I want to talk about is what's probably on a lot of your minds is what happens when you get sucked into a black hole. So there are a lot of theories out there about what could possibly happen, but I'm going to cover two that I, that I found uh, the most interesting. So one is spaghettification, which basically means that as you get pulled in, you'll get stretched, feeling a larger pull on your legs, and you'll get pulled and pulled and pulled into a thin noodle or a thin string, and then hot plasma will literally just obliterate you. Yeah, no, I'll pass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think we all will. <laughs> all right, the next theory is called the holographic projection theory. I remember learning about this back in school, and I was just absolutely amazed. And I remember I watched a video by Neil deGrasse Tyson teaching it, and I can't find the video again. But So this is a very wild theory surrounding black holes. And just follow me for a minute. Imagine that you threw your water bottle into a black hole. Per the holographic projection theory, your water bottle will be obliterated, but the data of the water bottle will live in the event horizon. What gets crazier is that mathematicians and physicists believe that we are all a holograph. What we believe is 3D is actually 2D, all projected by the data that lives in the black hole. So, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to like think about it like they actually think that the data that basically whatever we are, we are broken down into data like bits, pixels. And just like any sort of like memory, like ROM, RAM, any sort of disk that can store data. That's like, think about like another, uh, think about like uh, one of those 2D pictures that is actually a hologram. Like, you know, when you like move a 2D sticker, but it looks like it's a 3D sticker because it's a hologram. Tupac. They, yeah. People, I don't know if people <laughs> are going to get that. <laughs> I think you have to explain it for everyone. <laughs> All right. So many years ago, the rapper Tupac uh, very unfortunately died. And then they did a concert and they brought Tupac back as a hologram. And it was like a huge deal. And it was, what year was this? I'm going to Google. 2012. The smartphone was very new. And it was a very big deal that they put this telegram of Tupac up. Oh, yeah. So that is what I always think about when I hear a hologram. All right. So, yes, this is definitely wild. I definitely said what every single time I read it. But the situation is, is that before you drop out of this episode thinking it's about conspiracy theories, this is actually based on math. And the math actually works out for this. And it brings together, so two, two fields of science that need to be brought together is one, Einstein's theory of relativity, which really describes the universe at a macro scale. and it brings together quantum theory, which really uh, explains our origins of space. What this, what the holographic projection theory does is that these physicists and mathematicians have worked out the math such that they have married the two concepts. They have married Einstein's general theory of relativity and quantum theory and have brought it together to make it work. And that's why this um, holographic projection theory exists. 
So there's a lot of math, a lot of physics behind it, but wow. it works out. All right. Um, yeah. I'm intrigued and want to dig into that more, but I also don't. Literally, <laughs> we are all a projection. <laughs> all right. That was awesome. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, that's all I have. You want to take a quick break? Yes, let's do it. Let's do the history of black holes. Yes, I'm so excited. I like the history sections because it gives me a chance to go into stuff that's unrelated to the topic that we are supposed to be discussing. (laughs) All right. So while the term black holes did not yet exist, the first person to propose the idea of a body that was so large, even light could not escape, was named John Michel. We've talked about some interesting people on this podcast, but I personally think that Michel wins this by a long shot. John Michel was born in 1724 in Nottinghamshire, England. For a little context here, because I had absolutely no context for 1724, the American Civil War wasn't until 1861, so more than 100 years after this. Other coincidence, germ theory wasn't discovered until 1861 either. America did exist, though. The first U.S. colony at Jamestown, Virginia, was founded in 1607. But it wasn't until 1776 that the United States of America were officially established. So, no germ theory. It was the United Colonies. It was not the United States of America. Fun fact, though. Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit proposed the Fahrenheit temperature scale in 1724. So, I don't know if we feel positively or negatively about him in the Fahrenheit temperature scale. But I thought that was interesting. That's fascinating. Like, I love how you... Build the perspective when you start off the history sections, and I really appreciate that. Thanks. It's mostly because I was like, I have no concept. Like, history for me is like, okay, we had the pyramids. Somewhere in there we had, like, Greek philosophers, classical era, running water, present day. (laughs) (laughs) Running water, present day. Yeah, this is wild. A hundred years before germ theory? That's crazy. Yes, I know. We didn't know what germs were. Yeah, that's wild. All right. So Michelle studied at Cambridge University, where he went on to teach Hebrew, Greek, mathematics, geology, and philosophy. So really just... Everything. Got them all. (laughs) Yeah. He discovered that the magnetic force exerted by a pole of a magnet obeys something called the inverse square law. So essentially it means it decreases by the square of the distance. He was also the first person to propose that earthquakes propagate as waves. So he essentially invented the field of seismology. So no germ theory, but seismology. But seismology. That's impressive. I know. He also designed the experiment, which was later performed by Henry Cavendish. If you remember his name or if it seems familiar, it's because he discovered hydrogen. So he designed the experiment to measure the force of gravity between two objects of known masses. This helped lead to the discovery of the gravitational constant. I would say we're already at impressive. Oh, definitely. Oh, very definitely. But where it gets really crazy is in November of 1783, Michelle wrote a letter to Henry Cavendish. It would actually later be published in the Journal of the Royal Society. But in this letter, Michelle said the following. This is a direct quote. If the semi-diameter of a sphere of the same density as the sun in the proportion of 500 to 1 and by supposing light to be attracted by the same force in proportion to its mass with other bodies, all light admitted from such a body would be made to return towards it 
by its own proper gravity. End quote. This is a black hole. He's theorizing the existence of objects that are so large that light could not escape. But the word black hole didn't exist yet, so he called them dark stars. And I actually kind of like that. I think that's cool. I love that. He then goes on to say that we might be able to indirectly detect where these dark stars are if they had a regular luminous star circling them. So he was right about that, too. Binary star systems are a way astronomers use to infer where black holes are. So not only in 1783 did he infer that black holes existed, he also inferred about a way to figure out where they are. This is insane like i know i'm just trying to get by the day sending emails at work and here's john michelle just making all these wild discoveries back in the 1700s this is just blowing my mind i know (laughs) i know i thought my espresso machine was broken today i almost had a panic attack and this man's (laughs) figuring out black holes in 1783 (laughs) And I resonate with you on that. (laughs) It was not broken. It's okay. Oh, good. Oh, good. I felt the panic for you. (laughs) I knew you would understand. The only place where he was wrong was with the speed of light. Michelle thought that the speed of light would depend on the local speed of gravity. But as we know, in 1905, Einstein proved that light travels at a constant speed. Yes. I will actually go into more of this in a minute. So just hold for a second. Now, what really blew my mind was as I was reading this, I was wondering when the heliocentric model of the solar system was first proposed. The heliocentric model is what exists. It's where all the planets rotate around the sun. It was in 1543 by Nicholas Copernicus, but it took more than a century for this to become widely accepted. This was 240 years before Michel theorized the existence of black holes. Now, what I thought was particularly interesting about this was that in the year 2019, using the Event Horizon Telescope, or the EHT, scientists were able to capture an image of a black hole. That was 236 years after Michelle first proposed they existed. So the time from when somebody was like, hey, I think all the planets rotate around the sun, to when Michelle was like, I think black holes exist. And the time from when Michelle said, I think black holes existed, to when we could actually get a picture of a black hole are the same. Wait, that's so crazy. Yeah, I know. Michelle was like, I think black holes exist. 236 years later, we were finally able to get a picture. But it only took 240 years from like, hey, I think the Earth rotates around the sun and not the other way around to do black holes exist? Like, that was the same amount of time that we made those jumps. First of all, what a coincidence. I know. I thought that was weird. (laughs) It's really wild. Like, are we all connected somehow? (laughs) We're a science podcast, so I can't. Wow, kudos to Michelle, kudos to Copernicus. I know. Shout out, guys. Very impressive work. We're fans. (laughs) As an aside, the EHD, the Event Horizon Telescope, is really cool. So cool, as Hannah kind of mentioned at the beginning, that we're going to do an entire episode on it. It definitely would have been shafted if we tried to cram it in here. So don't worry, we will get to it. Yes. Actually... I had referenced the PhD dissertation of one of the scientists that worked on the telescope. So I'll have that linked in the sources. Sweet. I also linked to an article that shows that picture of the black hole. Or you can just Google it. And then you can see that ring of fire that Hannah talked about. Awesome. Unfortunately, Michelle's theory for dark stars didn't gain traction for almost two centuries. 
Many of Michel's ideas were so far ahead of his time that he did not get the recognition he deserved for them. The American Physical Society described Michel as being so far ahead of his scientific contemporaries that his ideas languished in obscurity until they were reinvented more than a century later. So he was so far ahead of his time, everybody just thought he was talking nonsense. That's so sad. I know. But hopefully we can give him his recognition now. Even though it's probably too late. We recognize you. We do. It was really incredible. But back to black holes and the man most associated with their discovery, Albert Einstein. I honestly thought Einstein had discovered them. Because everywhere you hear, you're like, oh yeah, Einstein, black holes. I didn't realize it was Michelle at all. So I was really uh, happy to get to do this research. Yeah, actually, I thought the same thing until I started reading, and I was like, oh. I know. In 1939, so Einstein would have been 60, he was born in 1879, he published a paper in the journal Annals of Mathematics. This paper was titled, On a Stationary System with Spherical Symmetry Consisting of Many Gravitating Masses. Ironically, Einstein published this paper to disprove the existence of a celestial object that was so dense even light could not escape it. So he was trying to say black holes didn't exist. But in order to do this, he used his own theories for relativity and gravitation, which he published in 1916. So 23 years prior. All right, this is a very, very brief summary of relativity. There is special relativity and there is general relativity. Einstein published his findings about special relativity in 1905. And it can be summarized with three main rules of relativity. The first one is that the measured speed or momentum of an object will always be in relation to something else. This is a good one, right? Because I'm currently sitting on my couch, not moving. Actually, at the time, I'm actually sitting at my desk. But when I was writing these notes, I was sitting on my couch. But the Earth is moving. So depending on your frame of reference, if you are also on the Earth with me, I am not moving. But if you are observing me from a frame of reference that is outside of the Earth, I would be moving. Because I am on the earth and the earth is moving. Another way to think about this is if you're driving in your car and somebody is driving next to you the exact same speed, they're going to look like they're not moving. But to an observer standing on the side of the road, both of you are going to be moving at the same speed. Speed and momentum are relative to the observer. Yes, exactly. However, the exception to this is the speed of light. The speed of light is always the same. It does not matter the speed of the person measuring it. So the observer can be going at whatever speed they so desire. The speed of light will remain the same. What's important about this is that the same is not true for space or time, both of which vary depending on the observer. Time depends on the observer, exactly as Hannah mentioned earlier with that black hole. It will feel really fast for the person in the black hole. It will be really slow for the person watching the person get sucked into the black hole. Time and space are relative, but light is not. And the final point is that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, as Henna has already mentioned. Yes, which is really freaky because you can't escape a black hole unless you travel faster than the speed of light. And you can't travel faster than the speed of light, as we know of at this time. Correct. Uh, I I guess just don't put yourself in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) Any of you are thinking about it, just don't. (laughs) Just maybe don't. This led to the discovery that space and time are interwoven into a single continuum, which became known as space-time, which is another great buzzword. This brings us to general relativity. Einstein didn't write about general relativity until 1915. 
Again, a very basic definition is that general relativity is the idea that massive objects would cause a distortion in space-time, which would be felt as gravity. So essentially the idea here is that planets alter space-time because they have gravitational fields. Yes, this is true. Yeah, Hannah, we actually talked about this in our planetary slingshot episode. Yes, we did. But like, if you have a big trampoline and you're sitting on the edge of it and somebody puts a marble in the middle of the trampoline, that's a lot smaller than you. You're not going to be pulled down towards that marble because it doesn't make enough of an effect in the trampoline to pull you towards it. But if somebody puts a giant boulder in the middle of the trampoline, it's going to put a huge dent in the trampoline and cause this big slope from the outside edge to where the boulder is. And it's going to pull you in. Exactly. Now imagine if that boulder was a planet in the fabric of space-time. Just imagine like you're sitting in the middle of the trampoline and someone puts a marble at the end. It's going to fall towards you. Exactly. So that is general relativity. Congratulations. You can pull it out at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Or not. Maybe you're cooler than me. (laughs) Anna, if you pull that out at a party, I think you're really cool. (laughs) Thank you. This is why we're friends. So in this paper, Einstein used his theories of relativity to disprove black holes. Then, this is, you know, some fun drama. Months later, Robert Oppenheimer, if his name is familiar to you, it is because he is most famously known as the father of the atomic bomb. And his student, Hartland S. Snyder, published their own paper titled On Continued Gravitational Contraction. This paper, which did not mention Einstein's paper, used Einstein's theory of relativity to show how it would be possible for black holes to form. What is particularly interesting about this is that a large portion of the modern study of black holes builds on a different discovery of Einstein's quantum statistical mechanics. I will not be explaining this here, but if you're interested, please go dig into it. So essentially, Einstein wrote this paper saying, I don't think black holes exist. A different theory of Einstein's is used in the modern study of black holes today. I read an article that referred to him as like the reluctant father of black holes. So rather reluctantly, Einstein contributed in a fairly large part to the discovery of black holes. Now, a whole lot of stuff has been discovered about black holes since the publication of these papers. The Event Horizon Telescope is a big one. However, we want to make sure that gets the time it deserves. We're going to go into that in a different episode. If you're interested in more about the recent research of black holes, there is so much information out there for you on the internet. A lot of it gets too complicated for me to try to explain here. But it's really cool stuff. Now, I'm going to jump to the etymology, because I thought this was cool. Where did that term black hole come from? John Michel, as I've already mentioned, called them dark stars. And supposedly in the 1960s, American physicist and astronomer Robert H. Dick compared dark stars to the black hole of Kolkata, which was a famous prison that was operational in the 1750s and was notorious for prisoners entering but never leaving. So that's a bit of a downer. Oof, that's heavy. It was, I was reading this. I was like, oh, fun, etymology. And I was like, oh, (laughs) darn. Yeah. Then, in 1963, the term black hole was used in both life and science news magazines. Science writer Anne Ewing wrote an article entitled Black Holes in Space, dated January of 1964. I'm assuming... The use of this term in all three of these places originates from Robert Dick's original use of the phrase, but it's hard to tell. And then, in 1967, American theoretical physicist John Wheeler also began using the term black hole after one of his students suggested it. 
Apparently Wheeler liked it because of its advertising value. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe thought it was catchy. And it kind of is. It is. It is. And so it's hard to know. Did his student get the term from Robert H. Dick and then recommend it to Wheeler? I don't know. Yeah. I do know is that after Wheeler adopted it, it quickly caught on. So some coin Wheeler with the term's creation. However, it's really hard to know. Fascinating. I did not know any of that. I didn't either. So I thought that was interesting. I kind of like dark stars. Yeah, me too. I guess a neutron star could also be a dark star. So maybe that's too broad. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's all I got. Anna, I loved it. How fascinating. Thank you. I had a really good time. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into our sources, do you want to tell everybody where they can find us? Yes, I'd love to. All right. You can find us on butitisrocketscience.com. On our website, we have a Contact Us page. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please message us through that. We would love to hear from you. We also have merch. So if you're interested in any cool tote bags, t-shirts, mugs with our logo on it, you can buy that there. Currently, we only have shipping to U.S. and Canada, but if we see interest from elsewhere, we can definitely try to work on that. You can also find us on our Twitter at ButItIsRS. You can find us on Instagram at ButItIsRocketScience. And you can find us on our Facebook page, ButItIsRocketScience. We also have a Patreon, but we also know this is a really weird time. COVID is happening. A lot is going on in the world. So there's no pressure to put anything on there. But if you feel so inclined, we have our Patreon and you can find us at But It Is Rocket Science. Yeah, but we are just happy you're here. Yes, we are just so, so happy that you're tuning in and listening. It means the world to us. It does. I can't believe how long we've been doing this now. We made it to episode 40. Yes, this is episode 40. That's so many. It's wild. All right, Anna, do you want to tell everyone about the sources you used? Oh my god, I have so many. Okay, some of them are just for random stuff that I (laughs) felt some need to look into. (laughs) Uh, So I started out with the Wikipedia page for Black Holes. That's where I started. I then jumped to the Wikipedia page for John Michelle. I then found a bunch of really interesting articles about John Michelle. One was from xnet.com. Another one I found was from the American National History Museum. That was all about John Michelle. And then I had to, I had to Google when the United States began being called the United States. So I have a website for that. I have a Wikipedia page about important events that happened in the 18th century. I don't even know what this is. Oh, I have a website to figure out when the first colony at Jamestown was established. As I mentioned, I had to figure out all those dates. And then I actually get into stuff that's more relevant. I have a NASA.gov article that explains relativity. I have that article I mentioned from JPL that talks all about the EHT and how scientists captured that first image of a black hole, as well as the image of the black hole. That's a really cool article. I have an article from the Royal Society about black holes. I have that Scientific American article I mentioned that was called The Reluctant Father of Black Holes, which talks about Einstein and his contribution to black holes. I have a website link that attaches to Einstein's original paper, but unfortunately I couldn't find it for free on the internet. I have a Wired article. <laughs> I have a Wired article all about relativity, and then I have Wikipedia pages for Robert J. Oppenheimer and the black hole of Calcutta. And that is all I got. Awesome. All right, so I used a few YouTube videos. One of the YouTube videos that I used was by Kurzgesagt called "Black Holes Explained." I also used an article called What Happens When Stars Produce Iron. It was a futurism.com article. I used a science.nasa.gov article on how do stars form and evolve. 
I used a space.com article on black holes. I used a, another space.com article on the photon sphere around black holes. I also used the a PhD dissertation called Extreme Imaging via Physical Model Inversion, Seeing Around Corners and Imaging Black Holes. This was by Dr. Catherine Bowman. I used another article on the European Southern Observatory website titled Anatomy of a Black Hole. I also had a wikipedia.org article on the gravitational singularity and a wired.com article on Our Universe is a Hologram. Wow. All right, Anna, do you want to go ahead and close us out? Do you want to do it this time? I'd love to. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, two one, liftoff. Lift off. Nice. Awesome.